This is an ABC podcast. In my whole time in the Brothers, 17 years, from 15 to 32, I never had a talk with any other brother or boy that I was training with uh, about intimacy or sexuality. Graham English joined the Christian Brothers Catholic Religious Order as a trainee in the 1960s, before he'd reached puberty. A few years later, at age 14, Michael Bright did the same thing, starting out at the Order's male-only Strathfield Training College in Sydney's Inner West. The dormitory was above our study, and in the study they had an old chiming clock that chimed the hour. I would regularly hear every hour chime, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. You'd wake up the next day totally exhausted, and your stomach would be tired in a knot. You were physically sick from worry. You just suffered in silence, knowing that it's got to end at some point. Hi, I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and in this episode of Earshot, a rare glimpse inside the secret cloistered world of the Christian Brothers. This Irish teaching order was brought to Australia in the 19th century and set up dozens of schools that, for decades, were staffed by celibate communities of Christian Brothers. But by the 1970s, the numbers had dropped off sharply and the last living brother joined over 30 years ago. The story of the Christian Brothers has been almost eclipsed by its appalling record of child sexual abuse. The Australian Sex Abuse Royal Commission revealed it had clocked up more abuse complaints than any other Catholic authority. So far, little has been revealed about the lives of the hundreds of young boys who chose to become men behind the walls of this once mighty religious order. Now in their 70s, Graham English and Michael Bright spoke to producer Charlotte King about what it was like to experience adolescence and early adulthood within this closed institution. This is The Call, Inside the Christian Brothers. I went to a school where there were five brothers on the staff. The schools were there mainly to make sure we became good Catholics rather than to educate us. So a lot of our teachers weren't very strong either. Uh, weren't strongly educated anyway. There were no lay staff. In grades three and four, there were 103 students in the class. The seats that used to accommodate two, we squeezed in to have four. So we shared the inkwells, four people to a desk. The school at the time was almost exclusively staffed by Christian brothers. And one brother took the class for everything. So you had him for every subject. And so if you got a tough one, you you had a hard time (laughs) all day, every day. Identification, this is tape one of three tapes of the Christian Brothers. There's a play that was on here in the 70s called The Christian Brother. It was written for Don Crosby. The ABC recorded Don doing it. takes place in Sydney in the 1950s. The scene is a schoolroom. In the body of the classroom, there is a solitary black chair. The Christian brothers take three vows. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. 
the guy who wrote it said he'd been taught by a guy called Baptist Healy at Lewisham. He said, I was fascinated by the fact that when he was teaching us English, Latin and French, he was this intellectual man who was broad and could see the point of Wordsworth. And when we were in religion classes, he's this narrow Christian brother. People out there right now are fighting to believe in something. But you have the faith given to you as a gift from birth. Hold on to it, boys, and nurture it all your lives. I saw them as normal. I saw the nuns as normal. I saw, we were a very religious family. Um, every night after tea, as we used to call it, uh, we'd turn the chairs around and kneel down and say the rosary. And um, my father, who was very pious, when, when my grandmother died, he got her prayer book and added all these other extra prayers. And then my mother joined a group called the Legion of Mary. There was not a single Catholic family in our street. And, and my father would not allow us to play with non-Catholics. He'd say, you've got plenty of brothers and sisters to play with. This was reciprocated too, because the other kids in the street would throw stones at you or make uh, remarks and even going to school, you used to have to run the gauntlet of the car park uh, to get to the train station. If you were in your St Pius X gear, there was this siege mentality that Catholics tended to have. Each year they would have a special period, I might go for a week, which was called Vocation Week. If you've got good health and are leading a pure life, then you may well have a vocation to the Christian Brothers. It's a wonderful vocation, boys. And they'd bring in the heavies, they'd bring in a visiting brother who'd talk about the wonderful life, and they might even show some slides of the brothers playing cricket, and, oh, it's great life, you know. It seemed, um, I don't know what it seemed, exciting is not the right word, but it seemed... This is much better than what I've got here. They deliberately picked brothers who were, were performers, whether they were sincere or not, it's another question. And you would be mesmerised in that week, you know, and got to a, a fever pitch at the end. You'd then be asked, you know, any boys who think they might like to join the brothers, just write on a bit of paper and put it into the box there and it's all going to be very private and so on. It was, in many cases, painted as a refuge, an asylum, to go and become a Christian brother is to get away from all the trials and tribulations of the world. So when you had that form to fill out, it said, why do you want to become a Christian brother? I still remember what I wrote, to save my soul and to save as many other souls as possible. They had this place, it's now a campus of the Australian Catholic University at Strathfield. They had the training college started there and they had what was essentially a, um, a kind of monastic boarding school, really. So will we go to Strathfield? Albert Road. Turn right onto Baker yeah. Road. Yeah, turn right to Baker Road, yeah. 
I can remember that much from 50 years ago. Now this building here, with the cross on it, this was the, um, the dormitory area upstairs. See all these little, little windows? They were all bedrooms. The original building here, that was a ballroom, a magnificent ballroom. You, you, you come over here and see it. It was changed into the dining hall for us. This is where we all, I assume it looks like a, a dining hall now. There's an espresso machine in there oh, now. How would you like a coffee? Like a coffee. <laughs> it must be bizarre being here in 2019, <laughs> surrounded by uni students. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Over in that corner there was a kind of dais with a pulpit and someone would read from the lives of the saints or some other religious tome and we'd eat in silence. I was last here in 1963. In 1963 I used to eat my meals in this area. As a, tra a trainee Christian brother. Way before I was born. <laughs> Graham, long time to You're see. not the splinter that you were when you were in Canberra. He was a little thin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Look, I've, I've got a tummy on me now. Yes. <laughs> That's going to be shaded. Yes. My first memory is getting with my father getting dropped off the bus. There's a bus stop just outside the gate. We walked in that gate. It was kind of, well, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> and my yeah. father said to yeah. me as he walked out the gate, well, just do your best. My father was not at all, well, he was inside, but it was just one of those things that you did. Mm. We all took final vows on Christmas Day. They, all the junior professed would make their vows at midnight mass. So we'd have this big mass where they'd be singing and all this stuff and all the juniors would make, would make their, their annual profession. The senior professed, the ones who were making finals, they'd have a mass for them at 11 o'clock in the morning or something. Everyone would have been in the chapel from sometime before midnight They'd have got out about two in the morning, had a sleep for a few hours, come back for morning prayers at six o'clock, then had the big three masses, <laughs> then final profession. Once you went, you never went home. And it changed part way through, so I got back uh, for a day after six years. There was a strong thing of this is your family, not that. And I was 15. Some of the people I was with had entered as 14-year-olds. One had entered as a 13-year-old. And until a few years before us, it was common for them to enter as 12 or 13-year-olds. When I got to the junior, for a couple of days I felt a bit homesick, and when I got to the novitiate a year later, for a couple of days I felt homesick. But I think I just made myself not be homesick. I mean, it was a kind of deliberate choice. 
I just took this on. When I got the habit, the novice master said to me, when you die, if it's Brother Anthony in the coffin, I was Brother Anthony, you'll have been a success. If it's Graham English, you'll have been a failure. And that was, um, that was the kind of theology that you lived with. Every day you went to Mass and had prayers, and in the evening there were, were prayers and, and that type of thing. But also there was a regime of silence for certain parts of it. You couldn't talk until after breakfast, about you know, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And at night time, you had every night rigorously from 7 o'clock till 9 o'clock study. Uh, and then you had a half hour break where you could talk and have hot chocolate or something and then uh, go off to bed. So it was a very structured day. I related very much to that because I was a very serious scholar and uh, I enjoyed learning. And any spare hour that I got to, to read, I would avail of it. And also I enjoyed sports, so you, you had in particular, they had handball, which is, you know, handball, it's an ancient sort of game, came from Ireland. Handball's great virtue is that it demands such energy that it outpaces the devil. Don't think that the brothers don't feel these temptations of the flesh. We're human and the devil is particularly anxious that we should fall. You know, boys, don't you, that the worst punishments in hell are reserved for fallen religious. And they say that damned priests suffer terribly. That's why we play handball. Come on, everybody, it's six o'clock. <laughs> Come on, everybody, it's time to rock. <laughs> you had no access to outside media at all, Catholic or otherwise. We weren't allowed to read the Catholic Weekly. Television was in Australia, but it was new. Uh, and the brothers weren't allowed to have televisions until uh, about 1966 or something. Um, then they had to be locked in a box. Hello there. Welcome to our program. It's our second last of the year. It's going to be a beauty, and we have Frankie Harson. I mean, we referred to the world as everything out there. And when someone left it, he'd say, oh, he's gone back to the world. There was a very strong um, us and them. They referred to people who left as defectors. And we had a, a book called The Directory, and there was a thing in it about brothers who leave are never to be referred to again, even in letters. During the weekends, you, there was music always available in the library and someone would be rostered to be in control of playing the music. Now, the selection of music was restricted to anything from the, the 40s to the 50s, uh, but contemporary music was absolutely taboo. On one occasion, someone secreted it in the uh, version of uh, In the Jungle, The Mighty Jungle, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That was played over the amplifiers. We were outside in the, on the handball courts and it was resonated out. They had speakers outside. 
And we thought, what's this, you know, this, this weird, wonderful, worldly song. But it wasn't long before the superior dashed down the stairs and, and rushed into the library and you heard the screech of the needle. paper pasted across them so that you, you would see a just a, a, a classical piano piece. Uh, I think one of them was um, Carmen Cavallero uh, and Alas was sitting on, on, on the pianist's lap but from the waist down was, was the brown paper you just saw the torso because she had uh, obviously long uh, lanky bare legs. Boys. The human body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And believe me, for those who abuse that temple by either posing near naked or leering at that pose are trafficking with the devil himself. We, we learned an enormous amount about obedience and poverty. The thing was, your superior's will for you is God's will for you. Brothers would wear clothes until they were falling off them. They'd get their underpants mended and all sorts of things. I mean, they'd have patches everywhere. You're allowed to keep a few common possessions, of course, a watch or a stopwatch and such like, but otherwise you own nothing and earn nothing. That means no insurance policies, no mortgages, no overdrafts, no bills. Makes life a lot simpler. Chastity. Well, you young fellas can never understand that. But chastity is relatively easy if you're busy. A week after we made first vows, we had an old Jesuit come out and give us a talk, supposedly on celibacy. Now, I reckon he drew a daffodil on the blackboard and a mate of mine reckons that he drew a daisy. And he talked about pistols and stamens and ended up saying, and brothers, it's the same for you and me. And that was our training in celibacy. I was nearly 16 before I actually reached physical puberty when I had my first wet dream and wondered what the hell was going on. The next 12 months after that, I, I thought there was something wrong with me. Any time of the day I had a sudden erection and, 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 and often you'd have a seminal emission and, you couldn't talk to anybody. You didn't know whether other people had this. You thought there was something wrong with you. The novice master at the time himself was a total misfit. He should never have been in the job. I have the absolute distinct memory of being invited into his office. And I can see it. I can see the door there. I can see the area in front of it with the statue of the Virgin in the corner. And opening the door, uh, of his office, and he's sitting on the other side of the desk, like the desk, he's sitting over there, and he said, Michael, take your habit off. He said, Michael, take your trousers down. And he said, Michael, drop your underpants. And they just looked at me, only for a minute or so, and they said, pull your underpants up, pants, and off you go. Now, <clears throat> to this day, I don't know why, I was asleep one night and I must have been having a wet dream, I'm not sure. 
and I woke up with the li a light shining in my face and the assistant novice master saying, Brother Anthony, Brother Anthony. And he said, put your habit on and follow me. So I put my habit on and we went into his bedroom and he sits in a chair and he makes me kneel in front of him and say over and over and over, and Mary, by your pure and immaculate conception, make my body pure and my soul holy. And eventually he was satisfied, so he sent me back to bed. How old were you? 16. Um, and that's bizarre. I think it's sexual abuse. But he didn't touch me. I've just presumed I was wrong. Although I think some part of me knew this was mad. Mark Twain, I think. Mark Twain said, if you tell lies, you better have a very good memory. Now, in a way that's happened with sexuality, that if you cover up and cover up and cover up and forbid and forbid and forbid and forbid, particularly if you tell lies, one day, all of a sudden it comes out. One day you get a Julia Gillard. Isolation, poor training and a lack of supervision. Those are some of the theories put to the Royal Commission today as to why child sexual abuse has been rife in some Catholic religious The Royal orders. Commission has found 22% of Christian brothers who ministered between 1950 and 2010 were the subject of an abuse claim. The order has paid out the highest total compensation of all Catholic institutions in Australia at $48.5 million. A lot of the brothers would have entered so-called junior formation. So some would have been as young as 14 and they were uneasy with adult relationships. Because I was in Catholic education for 46 years, I know over 40 people who've been named as sexual abusers and quite a lot of them have been or are in jail. I, I wasn't in community with anyone then that I was aware of was abusing kids. There were, there were a few I've found out since. I don't think they were abusing kids when I was living with them, but they might have been. But in most cases, I don't know exactly what they did. For three years or more, as, as I said, I was studying at, uh, at ANU and doing particularly French uh, philosophy and French uh, literature. And, I, and they were lampooning the church and questioning the church and ridiculing the church. And, and I thought, these, these guys are right, you know. I've been conned. And, and eventually, I'm in front of a class of kids and I'm supposed to be teaching them that if they don't go to church on Sunday and get their parents, must get them on church today, now you'll go to hell. I, I, I can't do that. I don't believe it. I can't talk about the resurrection because I don't believe it. I can't talk about the assumption or the virgin birth. And for that matter, I don't believe in the Ten Commandments or Moses crossing the Red Sea and half the other stuff. It, it gradually just got t totally eroded. Like the, the, the foundations of, were chipped away totally and the whole building collapsed. I was totally 
ill-equipped for you know, living in a, in a social environment after living for 10 years virtually in a, an all-male environment. And I was conscious, I was awkward. Look, even though I was you know, academically competent and competent in teaching and so forth, in mixing with the opposite sex, I, I was gauche, I was like a 14 year old. I thought, I've got to do something about this, so I'm going to learn to dance. And I rocked up, uh, enrolled, and came there. And I remember my, my first dance, and I'm holding this, this girl's hands, and she was very attractive. 22-year-old or something, and I'm holding her hands and I'm squeezing them so tight. And I'm seeing the look on her face of, of sort of terror. You know? <laughs> I'm sort of conscious I'm squeezing, but I'm not conscious I'm squeezing. And I'm stamping all over and I'm sweating profusely. And I think I went through about 15 minutes of this and I said, I'm out, I'm out of here. I, I gave up, I shouldn't have. And that was my first and only dance lesson. When I was making final profession, there was a guy in our group who was five or six years older than me. He said to me, you've got to actually choose celibacy, you know. So I sat and thought about this and tried in my head <laughs> to choose celibacy. But I mean, it's, it was something I knew nothing about. So I couldn't say, well, I've, I've got two choices, this or this. Um, here's my wife coming in. Just Hello, how are you? I'm well, and you? Very good. I'm Erin. I just came to work in my study. They were running a program up here of group work, counselling. Erin decided she'd go and I decided I'd go and there was a Maris brother who had a car. So, he, so the three of us drove up and we did a week of group work and um, Erin gave me a uh, camellia in a little vase and I did the typical Christian Brothers thing of not looking at it. That was the start of our friendship. She's more adventurous than I am. <laughs> she rang me up one day, she was still a nun, but she said, I was sitting today thinking and I thought, I don't have to be a nun if I don't want to be. It nearly ruined me, because I knew I had to make a decision. At Christmas 1976, she bought two air tickets to Brisbane. And I'd said to her a few weeks before Christmas, I'm leaving. And I went up to tell the provincial, and he said, God doesn't want you to leave. And uh, so Aaron, I rang her, and I was in a mess. And she said, are you, are you coming to Brisbane or not? I've bought two tickets, but I can get the money back. And uh, finally, on the day before Christmas Eve, I just went up and said, I'm leaving, full stop. <laughs> I mean, it's quite mad. I, I rang Erin up, she was at work, it was Christmas Eve, and she was in youth and community. And uh, I said, I'm leaving. And she said, are you sure? And I said, yes. I said, I'll meet you in at Gowings, which was a menswear shop, because I had no civvies, uh, civilian clothes. Um, so we met in at Gowings, and we picked out some clothes and I went back and put them on and got some gear and met her and we went and flew to Brisbane. 
It was like, <laughs> when I was a very small child, we lived behind the swimming pool at Young, the town bath. They had a high board diving tower. And I, used to, I was only three. I could see these guys leaping off this. Oh yeah, I did it myself later as a kid. And when you're jumping off a tower, you just jump and you get this, and then you're in the water. Um, once I did it, it was like jumping off the tower. You just kind of I just had this feeling of, yeah, this is right. The Call, Inside the Christian Brothers, was produced by Charlotte King. The sound engineer was Melissa May. And thank you to Graham English and Michael Bright for sharing their stories. And thanks also to ABC Ballarat. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and I'll catch you next time on Earshot with more stories told from around the world or maybe just over the back fence. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.